If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. I was watching people really learn how to deal with this new medium. So we had to deal with a lot of really interesting visual challenges. For one, stitching, which is like merging two images of the same thing that are taken from different vantage points. Jeffrey Bund is one of the pioneers of virtual reality. Jeff, who is a subject matter expert in virtual, augmented, and mixed reality, currently serves as head of business development for the Americas for Finland-based virtual and mixed reality hardware company Vario. And Vario's website says they are creating a new kind of immersive computing, merging augmented, virtual, and physical realities to become one. Jeff's professional expertise includes extensive technical work in media, both episodic television and stereoscopic cinema, think 3D and IMAX. And in 2015, he served as technical lead in developing the world's first professional VR camera to give audiences a 360-degree view of performances and special events, including going live during the 2016 finals of Dancing with the Stars. Jeff, how did you first realize the magic element of creating experiences with immersive technology? Yeah, thanks for the question. I came to work in immersive technology through my work in cinema, actually. So I started out, my first real career was shooting stereoscopic movies for Hollywood. So I was in and ran camera teams that use 3D capture technology. So I had been accustomed to thinking about, I guess, what you might call advanced image capture and what could be possible. And we had already been always thinking about images in terms of left eye and right eye and not just a flat image. And so what happened was a, a really good friend of mine to this day, and at the time a guy I had worked for a lot named Matt Blute, who's a stereographer and cinematographer of some note in Hollywood, he showed me an Oculus DK1 and basically said, you're a tinkerer. You seem like you'd like to fiddle with this. A bunch of people have been asking me about it. What do you think about this? I mean, could we, is this something where we could make content for this, knowing what we know about 3D? And that kicked off what, for me, I guess, has now been a six or seven year career in virtual reality. And so what we started doing was we looked at how we could apply the institutional knowledge of stereoscopic capture over to virtual reality, which in layman's terms is really, how could we shoot movies for headsets? And in doing that, I learned a lot about panographic stitching and using tools like Pano Tools and PT GUI. And we also did a lot of work trying to optimize workflows for Hollywood where our clients could shoot music videos, shoot commercials, or deliver other content for the DK1 in a way that was more familiar to them in a way so that they could, say, work with a 360 or immersive image in the way that they were used to handling that in a traditional visual effects pipeline. And that was really cool. And one thing led to another, and we ended up getting asked to look really critically at a camera that Nokia was developing 
that would basically automate stereoscopic 360 capture for film professionals. And it was a camera that didn't have a name yet, but at the time, but now we call it Ozo. And I got to work on that camera and, you know, deliver it into the hands of early customers, supervise a lot of the advanced projects that were being shot using it and also advise on product spec and spin off some accessories that professionals could use to use it to put the camera into good use. And then from there, through a bunch of Finnish connections and the community in Helsinki, I ended up working at Vario. And Vario has been really great because what I've seen all the way from the days of DK1 over now, DK1 up through Ozo, what I've seen all the way from working with the Oculus DK1 and then all the way up through Ozo days is that resolution and the performance of the display hardware was always a limiting factor. People would always complain about the screen door effect or they wouldn't call it this, but they'd talk about the chromatic aberration that was in the optics. And basically being separated from like having real immersion by being by looking at pixels and seeing bad images, which at the time I blamed on the superior image quality of TV monitors and projectors. I mean, I think people now are accustomed to looking at such rich displays with OLED, like widescreen OLEDs and everything, that when they put on a VR headset, it was really not matching things that consumers are now accustomed to. And with Vario, I really saw a chance to push the technology a lot further. And, you know, Vario is a, the company I work for now, so full disclosure, but we deliver a series of headsets that offer human eye resolution and a bunch of other features that basically allow people to interact with an immersive or augmented environment as they could in real life. And we're really starting to blend the boundaries between like real physical environments and virtual environments. And it's really cool to see what's possible. I mean, our customers are doing just some really amazing things with the technology. I noticed on Vario's website, you're doing an academic program too. It seems like Vario is mostly for industry, but the academic program is relatively new. Do I have that correct? It is, yeah. I mean, I have the distinct pleasure of being the account manager in charge of the academic customers and what we're doing in the space. And I just love this space, especially what's going on in research with AR and VR. And I don't want to go into too much detail about what some people are doing because I don't know if I have their permission to talk about it. But some of the people I work with, I just am in such admiration of them because they're doing things like using virtual reality or augmented reality to study the way we perceive ourselves and not so much in the abstract, like what you think of your own personality, but really how we perceive of ourselves physically, like how how do we know or, or have a sense for where our arm or hand is without looking at it? Or when we are looking at it, does our brain sometimes lie to us about where we are in space? And some of that research is, well, it's really interesting. It's really intriguing. And then we're, I'm also seeing, I mean, the use cases are super numerous, but I have a lot of customers using eye tracking in our headsets to do really interesting things like 
aside from just observing where a user is looking during an experience, you can use eye tracking to do all sorts of really interesting things. Like you can use pupil measurements to make some inferences about how stressed out someone is or how challenged they are during a training experience. And we're also seeing things that are even more sort of cutting edge, which is doing things like using smooth or jerky pursuit of an object across a screen to gauge whether people have had a concussion or a traumatic brain injury. And then I even have some people who are looking at things like doing really early diagnosis of degenerative muscle disorders using the eye tracker. And the way they're doing it is actually a bit above my head, but it's super interesting. And then I guess to bring it a little bit more grounded into something concrete and visual is I have a great set of customers that are looking critically at like, how do we collaborate in augmented reality and what are the tools that need to be there to do that effectively? So things like when you and I, if we were in the same room together, we would be able to pick up on a lot of nonverbal cues about what we're talking about. So, you know, if I had a cup of coffee in front of me and I looked at it, you would be able to sense that without me, you know, pointing at the cup of coffee, verbally referring to the cup of coffee, like I could do a bunch of things that would signal that that's where my attention is. And a lot of those tools right now are lacking in AR and VR. And I think especially in the current environment with all of us remote working, with a lot of social distancing measures in place, fleshing out what it looks like for us to, you know, use network connectivity to get together and accomplish tasks collaborate on things, design cars and do other things is becoming more and more important. And I think where this research is headed is in a way, ironically, like getting the technology out of the way so that people can interact with their jobs in the ways that they're used to, but using virtual reality and augmented reality, if that makes any sense. It really does. Hopefully without asking about anything proprietary here, but I'm curious how our listeners who are mostly academics and makers, maker entrepreneurs might use this, the augmented reality app that you just mentioned and the technology to get people together and have them collaborate on things. Yeah, that's a great question. So one thing that we've just announced that I think is an illustrative use case that could be extrapolated out to many other things is we've been talking about how Kia at Kia Automotive Designers are using our headsets to design cars together. But what that physically looks like is actually super interesting, is that one person can be in a room with a specific lighting environment or a specific physical environment, you know, on a mountaintop or in an office or in a warehouse, and they can place an object in that environment, which in this case would be a car, And that object will visually look as though it's in that room, regardless of what that room is. So it'll it'll have all the same reflections and visual behavior as something in that context. And then other people can go into that room as avatars and interact with that first person and that design element in that room. And so I think this is just an example. But what we're seeing is that I've seen people like Shannon Putman at Louisville University do some really interesting things with creating a teaching environment where students can learn about orienteering and topography. So if you picture the 
the use case I just mentioned with a car, but instead of a car, all of a sudden now it's a topographical map of Yosemite or, you know, someplace in Appalachia. And those students can then look physically at, you know, where the topography lines are and how it's broken up so that when then in the future, a 2D map is placed in front of them, they have the visual cues of what that actually means in terms of an incline and they're able to visualize it. Or, you know, there's tons of other examples from there, but I really have enjoyed just the sheer pleasure of being able to get together with a group of friends again and do something like watch a stupid video on YouTube or something like that. But all of those things that like free exchange of ideas, the way that we're used to socially interacting in a classroom environment or in a training environment can start opening back up. And I think the main obstacles right now are really the ecosystem, like sometimes setting up like tracking environments and volume spaces is really cumbersome and it doesn't work properly. And sometimes the controls and other things aren't intuitive. So I think what we're really seeing in COVID is actually, I think accelerating this is the design fluency and the user interfaces that are going to make those experiences super usable, super intuitive. And I think as a result, much more productive and constructive. I think we're going to see more and more of that in the coming months. There's a lot of people who've been working on some really cool stuff behind closed doors, you know, since March. I wish you would take me back in your imagination. I am back on that Ozo camera. And tell me what the experience was like for you the very first time that anybody used that one professionally. What was going on? Oh, yeah, that was such an exciting time. I mean, that was a really exciting few years in my life. I traveled all around the world helping people use the camera. And it was also really exciting from, uh, I guess, what I would call an academic standpoint in that I was watching people really learn through experience how to deal with this new medium. So we had to deal with a lot of really interesting visual challenges for one, stitching, which is like merging two images of the same thing that are taken from different vantage points, is a very difficult thing to do. And the engineers at Nokia had done a really good job of making stitching relatively invisible. But there were things that you could do or not do that would erase that illusion of invisibility. So like for one thing, like placing subjects really close to the camera didn't work well especially when it was combined with motion. And one of the things that directors have been doing more and more over the past you know, 10, 20 years is doing more and more close-ups and more and more camera movement. And I think actually a lot of this has to do with the influence of technology on the industry. Cameras have gotten lighter and more movable and more compact, as well as the technology to move them has become more accessible. But then I think also directors are more habituated to close-ups because people now are more used to watching content on smaller screens. People are on their iPads or laptops or even at home, even on their big TVs. It's still smaller than a movie, you know, uh, going to the cinema, which is, I think, what was happening. So we were really in a way where we didn't want to tell people what to do and we didn't want to seem like we knew better because we didn't. We were trying to guide people to make choices that would lead to really nice 360 imagery. 
And that was everything from lighting to camera movement to composition and trying to weave this delicate balance between being, you know, visually adventurous, but also staying within the boundaries of where the technology could accommodate what people wanted to do. What were some of the best creative risks you took as you were walking that delicate line? Yeah, so we worked with some guys at Magnopus who I helped them shoot a piece called the Argos File. I think it eventually went to, gosh, I want to say Venice or something, film festival. But they they had worked out some really interesting things. And so they had built a rig that would allow for the camera to be mounted atop someone's shoulders and still give kind of a convincing sense of height and depth. And we were able to sort of make this mounting system and then keep it keep it within the realm of, you know, decent movement where we were able to capture images that ended up being pretty convincing like it really did look like you were there but it also didn't like make people sick or break the stitching or break the technical capabilities of the camera and that was really cool and i also saw them do a bunch of interesting things with camera movement like one good example is that certain kinds of movement we found out work way better than others in this environment and i think it's like because we're used to walking straight forward in front of ourselves kind of linear forward movement didn't seem to hurt people as much as doing something like a pan or moving side to side when if you're watching an immersive video experience with a headset on and the camera pans, your first instinct is to fight it. And then the second reaction is often nausea. And so what the Magnopus guys had done is built all these kind of interesting shots around things like slides or other ways of moving the camera linearly that ended up working really well. I happened to see that on your website, which, by the way, let's be sure and mention, jeffbunge.com, spelling it G-E-O-F-F. If people would like to see this video, I thought it was interesting where they had the actor slide down an escalator, of all things. That was a creative way of getting to move that camera. Yeah, and I think the motion is a little fast for some people, but I think it's a good example of like being right on the line. I think a lot of people were able to handle it and I think visually it looks really cool and it wasn't a, it wasn't a stupid risk. It was a good one. And it's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of the moving the camera as somebody who hasn't done that much VR or immersive production yet. It's a great warning for people. What are some of the other creative mistakes that you see people make when they first start to do virtual reality and or XR production? Oh, I don't know if I would anymore be qualified to talk about it. It's been a few years since I did anything serious there, and I'm sure things have progressed. But I think that the way things are now, where I would end up steering a lot of immersive content production would be more into the realm of interactivity. I think there's a really great tool set that's starting to flesh out that is allowing people to create interactive content and not just video content. I think video content totally has a time and place, but my biggest warning or urge of people would be to really think about whether video is the best way to communicate what they want or teach what they want to teach. And right now, I think there's a lot of really cool mixed media stuff that people can do. Like one example is 
I was just testing this out the other day, but I used a compact LiDAR scanner to scan my living room. And there's a whole pipeline to basically take these scans and import them into Unity and work with them as game objects. And so if I were thinking about if I wanted to communicate what my house is like in a virtual reality experience, I would probably at this point be more inclined to do things like make a photogrammetry or LIDAR scanning model of my house and package that up in a way where people could experience it interactively than, say, do a walking tour with a 360 camera. Wow. I would never have thought of LIDAR as being something you could use to make VR. That just shows you how much I don't know yet. I'd love to know a little bit more about your experience, too, on the Dancing with the Stars finale. Your website says that you had 10 days to pull off a live 360, and it went flawlessly. Would you tell me the story of this one? Sure, yeah. This one was a really ambitious project, because I think where we started seeing a lot of opportunity at Nokia was in the live streaming aspect of VR, and I still think that's actually, like, a really interesting space, like, People love to watch sports events or go see concerts in virtual reality. And I haven't followed this up since COVID, but I would think given everything going on with social distancing right now, there's probably another opportunity to revisit that. But all that to say that Dancing with the Stars, the main kind of concerns were what we were trying to do is set up a multi-camera live environment that was also virtual reality, that was also ready to stream over IP. So what that involved was the Ozo camera was able to output a live SDI stream in real time, but it wasn't a standard format that the existing broadcast hardware was used to receiving. So the signals all had to be basically bridged. So like the signal path would be to go from the Ozo camera to basically an Ozo decoupler to then go into a live switching environment. And then in that live switching environment, we could use a 4K hardware to basically create a live show. And then it would have to be packaged back out for 360 streaming over YouTube. So when you're dealing with a show also that's been running for many seasons and there's a crew that's used to doing things a certain way, there's just a ton of challenges. You know, you don't always get the shot that you want because the priority is for the, you know, the network show to have the camera placement they want. And if they're going to be in front of you, you're the one who has to move. And then also just working around them and running the install of this, getting everything up and running in the back corner of that stage, and then also creating the handshake between the streaming encoder and YouTube. This was pretty challenging over the course of 10 days, but we pulled it off. It was really good. And uh, yeah, and I'm proud of it. With all the obstacles you've mentioned, what do you have to do? What are the safeguards ahead of time to make a live event of all things in 360 flawless? Well, I think it's you know, we have sort of, we had a saying when I was working in 3D, and I think it works in every other field that I've been in since, which is that it's much easier to teach a movie crew how to shoot 3D than teach a 3D person how to shoot a movie. And I say that to say, to communicate that 
the things that make a 360 live production successful are the same things that make any live production successful, which is to plan it out as much as possible to really have it thought out, like from a signal architecture way, how things are going to flow. And then, you know, the thing that everybody who works in live always knows is that you have backups for your backups. So to have a plan that involves a lot of redundancy is what makes you look good on the day. I love that backups for backups. I'm smiling at that because a friend of ours got married and he said that, in effect, my backups have backups. And by the <laughs> way, his wedding was flawless. I would love to do a shameless plug here. Are you going to be speaking in the future? And where can people see you? Where can they find your work? Oh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. I am doing a lot of speaking now with Vario. So let me be crisp about this because there's dates now. We are, I'll start with the last one. On October 22nd, I'll be doing a webinar with one of our Vario partners called ITI. And we're going to be showing off, it's actually interesting how relevant it is to all this work, but we're going to be showing off a virtual command center in VR and AR. And what ITI has basically created is really cool. It's this, it's a software hardware hybrid infrastructure that allows someone to basically mimic everything that you would get in a high-end AV facility in virtual reality. So what it basically is, is you can stream cameras into an encoder and that encoder will then hit a virtual environment and the virtual environment is a command center which like if you could picture something like like exactly what we had in dancing with the stars where you could toggle between cameras and switch videos and observe things and we're going to be showing that off it's really cool what they've created and then i will also on october 8th at 8 a.m. Eastern, I will be on a panel where Vario, Epic, Unreal, and Boeing are talking about the astronaut training that the Boeing Starliner team is doing with Vario and Unreal Engine. And that should be really great as well. The Boeing team in Houston that I work with on the Starliner program has created some really wonderful training for astronauts and they're able to train now remotely even in COVID times and they're doing that on really sophisticated procedures like the ISS docking procedure and other things and it's just I'm like super proud of them and it's really wonderful to see what they're doing. And this is exciting and inspiring to see the space program currently. Where can people access both the IPI event you're doing on the 22nd and the one? It would be at five o'clock in the morning out here, but well worth it. On the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it will be recorded if you want to catch it after your cup of coffee or during your cup of coffee if your coffee's not at 5 a.m. I would throw people over to vario.com, and that's V A R J O.com. There's a resources section on our website where we'll have advertised all of those things. Barjo.com. When we talk about what we're going to be doing with XR, I don't think anybody disagrees that we're in extraordinarily turbulent times. What are some of the best ways you see people using XR technology right now to encourage people, to connect them, to make them know we're going to get through these? That's a hard question. Just, yeah, that's a tough time in the world. I think that XR has the potential to 
help keep people more safe in this time with the pandemic going on. And what I mean to say is that it will allow for really intimate transfer of knowledge without being in the same room as someone. So people will be able to be trained without having to risk their safety. And also we're starting to see some really interesting things like facilities repair. So a good example would be, you know, if something breaks in a data center, it would normally be that someone would have to fly out and fix it. And in this case where that's becoming more and more risky, what could happen now is someone could basically put on a headset and be assisted by someone remotely. And so that person wearing the headset and the person remotely can both be safely social distanced, but they can communicate in a really rich environment about the technical thing that they want to do. Where I think XR has also the potential to enrich our lives, I guess, and help us connect in this time, is that I think, speaking from the experience of a user, there's something kind of wonderful and surreal about being in a virtual environment. Like, it, it's really cool to put on a headset and go hang out on a beach or whatever. And you do that for an hour and you feel like you left your house. But there is still something missing. And I think with XR, with, you know, devices that are able to capture the world around us and transmit that digitally, there's more opportunity for us to really share our own experiences. And what I mean is something that's really interesting, which is, you know, my favorite part about what's been going on now with remote work is in a way you get to be really more intimately connected with your coworkers or the people that you talk to on the phone because you're in their house as their, you know, five-year-old comes like running out of the kitchen or as their, you know, pets you know, have different plans for their meeting than they have. And I think that, like, XR, in a world where you can sort of switch between what you see and what you want other people to see, you can bring someone into your own experience in a way that I think is more meaningful. And I, I say that as someone who I think most of my friends prefer my dog to me. And so having a chance to see, you know, Alfred and what he's up to or things like that. I think that's the way that it can help bring us together. And it, it has a way of making this like synthetic or network connected content and experiences like more real, more close to home. And I think in some ways it can be more meaningful. It really can be, I think. And don't feel bad. I think a lot of people hearing me Zoom call would prefer my kitty cat's presence, Snow Leopard, <laughs> online. online. Yeah, yeah. As we wrap up here, if people could only get one thing from you, and your work in XR about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from you? You know, I'll, I'll echo something that my friend Adam says over and over, which is this whole idea of failing fast. I think that we're in a time where, you know, everything's changing really quickly, the technology's changing really quickly, and also for the first time in, you know, in a while, our needs are changing really dramatically. And I think that there's a great opportunity for all manner of innovations. I'm seeing people come out with really cool things like just like input controllers that allow people to interact more intuitively with what they're doing or, 
you know, there's all these cool use cases for eye tracking of even using eye tracking to do something like toggle a zoom on a camera or something like that. And I think that like for every, you know, good idea, there's probably four bad ideas, but I'm a big fan of the idea that to get to the stuff, we have to just do a lot. And I really, really want to see all of the rich stuff that we have now around something like the imaging ecosystem, like how easily people are able to deal with videos and images in their everyday life. I would love to see some of those tools and those conveniences start emerging for VR and XR. And I think this is a great time for that. There's never been a greater need. And a lot of the basic underlying tech that takes many years and billion dollar investments to develop is now there. So it's a really cool time. Jeff, thank you for your time today. Oh yeah, thank you, Dot. I appreciate it. It's nice talking to you always. You and I have been listening to VR, AR, and XR subject matter expert, Jeff Bunt. Jeff is the head of business development for the Americas for leading Finland-based VR and XR company, Vario. And as he mentioned, you'll get a chance to see two of his presentations if you'll check out Vario's website and take a look at their resources tab. Jeff is going to be participating in the October 8th panel, that's at 8 a.m. Eastern, 5 a.m. Pacific time, with Vario, Epic, Boeing, and Unreal about virtual astronaut training. And yes, if you haven't quite got your eyes open and haven't quite had your cup of coffee by 5 a.m. Pacific, it is going to be pre-recorded. You can check it out later. He's also doing an October 22nd webinar with ITI as they display a virtual command center. Find more information on these on vario.com, spelled V-A-R-J-O, on their resources tab, vario.com. And take a look at Jeff's past media projects in 360, including the behind-the-scenes video of the Argos file, which shows the way the crew set up that Ozo virtual reality camera to get some exciting shots at jeffbund.com, spelling Jeff's first name G-E-O-F-F, that's jeffbund.com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us, twomavericks, at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.